2: The rates of surgery for a variety of musculoskeletal diseases is really rising exponentially and has been doing so for some time. Now, at some point, many of you are going to be referred to a surgeon. Oftentimes, you may have asked for that, but frequently it occurs without you necessarily being prepared or having knowledge about what to expect. One of the common orthopedic procedures performed electively for people that have knee osteoarthritis is arthroscopy. There are many reasons why surgeons believe that this may be helpful. But before you make a decision about whether this is right for you, please understand the evidence. The fact that this doesn't have a role in the context of managing osteoarthritis outside of a very rare instance, and that it's really being overdone associated with both costs and harms. So it's really important that you be adequately informed about this particular procedure before you go along and have this appointment with a surgeon. We've repackaged some content from three prior episodes to try to bring you a little bit more light on this controversial topic. In the first instance, we repackaged some content from season one Episode nine, where we were joined by two prominent orthopedic surgeons, Chris Vitullo and Tepo Yavinen, to talk about the topic should I have an arthroscopy for knee osteoarthritis? Again, it's a controversial area, but they provide a description about what an arthroscopy is, what the evidence base is, does it have a role for osteoarthritis, but also does it have a role for a torn meniscus? What are the risks? And are there any instances? albeit rare, where a person with knee osteoarthritis might actually need an arthroscopy for a locked knee. Now, I think for many of you, you probably won't recognize this, but there is good evidence now to suggest that arthroscopy shortens the time to joint replacement. A lot of surgeons will say to you that there are particular subgroups that will benefit more strongly from this arthroscopy. Is there evidence to support that claim? I think it's really important that we dispel some of these myths so that you come away better informed. If you want to dig further into that episode, again, it's season one, episode nine, should I have an arthroscopy for knee osteoarthritis? But for now, here's some summarized content. Chris, I'm just wondering if you could, in the first instance, just describe what an arthroscopy, a scope, uh, washout or clean out of the knee actually is.
1: So an arthroscopy is just a way of accessing the joint without making a big incision. And so it's just two or three little nicks around the knee. You could actually do it on a local anesthetic or a general anesthetic. And it's a really nice way of visualizing the joint and to see what's happening now. Uh, so you can just do a diagnostic arthroscopy. We hardly ever do that these days because we have MRI and other modalities, which are probably more accurate. And then it depends what you do. So, a lot of the time uh, firstly arthroscopies were invented effectively a long time ago in japan in the 1920s for doing removal of loose bodies or meniscectomies where you excise a piece of tall meniscus and the technique's been expanded and we can do uh, more procedures such as knee reconstructions and other procedures so the term arthroscopy isn't really a procedure you sort of need to explain it's a visualization technique, and then depends what you do. But as you alluded to, David, most people, when they talk about an arthroscopy, most people are thinking about a clean out or a wash out. And those terms are popular in Australia, suggesting that you, know, you can somehow wash out the osteoarthritis of the knee, which obviously you can't, or somehow you know, washing out or putting fluid in there makes a the person better, which clearly it does not. So the term is mainly uh, a little bit vague, and that's probably the surgeons who use the terminology's fault. Some of these terms should be a bit clarified.
2: Thank you. Now, Teppo, I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about the evidence for the efficacy for knee osteoarthritis and separately for degenerative meniscal tears. And I guess just preface that answer with what is a meniscus?
3: There are two many sky in the knee, one in the inner side, which is called the medial side, and one on the outer side or the lateral side. They are these kind of like a half circle crescent type of cartilage pieces that are there. A lot of people call them cushion for the knee, but they are there mainly for, for making the knee more stable throughout the range of motion when you flex or straighten your knee they kind of move a little bit about and give you more stability and also maybe a little bit of a cushion for the articular cartilage. And as for for your question about the evidence on the surgery, there are a few people who disagree with the fact that this is probably one of the most or the best researched topics in the field of orthopedics. We currently have about ten high quality trials Comparing various kinds of procedures that you can do in the knee to either conservative treatment, which means physical therapy or exercise therapy, or as you mentioned earlier, our fidelity trial that compared the actual surgery of resecting little damaged parts of the meniscus to placebo or sham surgery, where we basically just looked inside the knee but didn't do any procedure while doing the surgery and all of these trials very consistently have shown that there is no added benefit to either doing physical physiotherapy or even sham surgery so this is basically the big picture we can go into little details but it really doesn't change.
2: Chris, are there any risks associated with the procedure?
3: Yeah, so any
1: surgical procedure has risks. So if you arthroscope arthritic knees or osteoarthritic knees, the infection rate's actually higher than average. It's probably because the local immune system is, is damaged. So an infected joint after a, um, say an arthroscope is, is not common, but it's uh, quite a devastating event or the individual who suffers that, particularly if the operation really isn't going to help.
2: And if you, if you had to quantify that broadly, just in percentage terms for the average person, what's, what's the percent chance they'll get a, an infected knee arthros- an arthroscopy?
1: I think probably it's, uh, you know, like for an arthritic knee, you're probably around one in 500 or something like
2: that. Yeah. Mm. Any other risks in terms of clots?
1: Yeah. So. So there's risks of blood clots in the in the calf, particularly. While they can be inconvenient for the person, the ones in the calf aren't particularly dangerous. They don't tend to spread. Ones up in the thigh and the pelvis, they're ones we really worry about. You can give a pulmonary embolism. This type of early ambulatory day surgery, the, the thrombosis, like the PE, pulmonary embolism risk and the significant one is actually really quite low. But Again, it's something you need to discuss with a patient if you're operating on them, like any operation. Patients usually get pain around the little portals at the front. So they're usually sore for a couple of months and uh, tender. And probably one of the biggest complications if you do a meniscectomy in someone who already has osteoarthritis is that potentially you can actually make their osteoarthritis worse. You can give something called a stress fracture of the joint surface of the bone and occasionally you can get collapse of the bone, and that can be quite a debilitating problem because that can push the person into then, unfortunately, needing a knee replacement, which can be uh, you know, quite debilitating when you know, it's a complication. Uh, the other complications are less common, but you know, they're the sort of main ones, I think, that you'd have to mention to patients if you are contemplating any arthroscopic undertaking.
2: Are there any instances, again, based on what Teppo's has told us about the efficacy and what you've mentioned about the risk. are there any instances where a person who has knee osteoarthritis might actually need an arthroscopy? Yeah, so someone
1: with uncomplicated knee osteoarthritis, and these terms aren't really well defined, but you know, just you know, an arthritic knee that uh, has no other real problems, so it's not locked, there's no loose body floating around it, you know, they're not going to benefit. So the only time you'd really contemplate it would be mainly a loose body, and that's a piece of often bone, or a large piece of articular cartilage that's actually jammed in the knee and the person can't really straighten their knee out. And some people, particularly osteoarthritis in the outside part of their knee, they seem to have these loose bodies which develop and they're going around. It's not something that come on gradually. This is somebody who was fine and then suddenly their knee jams. They cannot straighten it and they're in a lot of pain and they've got a piece of bone or something stuck in the front of their knee, which stops them straightening it. Now again, the more arthritic the knee gets, the more you start to, as a surgeon, think is this really going to benefit the person. And you have to be careful because when people describe, say, I, we, we ask the mate before they come and see me, ask about their symptoms, and I've actually never had a patient with a locked knee, that's one that's jammed, ever say that their knee is locked. The symptoms that patients describe, particularly around uh, catching, clicking, locking, really not accurate, particularly around locking. I've never actually had a patient who really said my knee's locked. They just describe this sudden severe pain. They can't straighten it. A lot of patients describe a you know, locked knee when they can't bend it, and that's just usually typically osteoarthritis causing the problem. The other reason you'd scope them is uh, if they have an infection, occasionally you see somebody with an infection, and that will be a reason to do an arthroscope to wash it out. You occasionally see people with tumours around their joint that you take it, you go and remove, those sort of things. And then sometimes you see people whose knees are actually locked because of a meniscus tear, And often in those situations, I try and repair them if I can, if they're repairable. So the bigger the tear and the more it gets inside the joint and you can't straighten it, that's often a meniscus tear that's repairable, depending on how much osteoarthritis is in the knee.
2: I mean, thinking about how common osteoarthritis is, are the instances you just described common or infrequent?
1: Really hard as a surgeon because all day long, I see people with osteoarthritic knees. And so if you ask me, everybody seems to have an osteoarthritic knee, and clearly they don't. And then, uh, yeah, but as you seen, the, the, the proportion of people who actually with knee osteoarthritis who are potential candidates for an arthroscope of their knee is, is very low. Yeah.
2: Thanks, Chris. Now, talking a little bit about the consequences for arthroscopy, but, Teppo, are you more or less likely to require a total joint replacement after an arthroscopy?
3: David, if you don't mind, I would like to give the listeners a little perspective on this issue through a little, very brief history. So nearthroscopy arthroscopy was introduced, as Chris already said, about 100 years ago. But once the technique really evolved, it became really popular in the 80s. And it was first used for people around their 20s to treat real injuries, someone who sprains their knee while playing soccer and has a locked knee, like Chris just described, can't extend the knee fully. But all of a sudden, we started scoping also middle-aged patients who had knee pain, but not really a consequence of a clear trauma, one event, but just gradually developed knee pain. And we started scoping those knees and noticed that they also had things that looked like meniscal tears. The, the meniscus wasn't pristine as it is in when people are in their 20s, but it was just various kind of features that looked like the menisci or the meniscus was damaged. And we started treating this and, and the people were happy after the surgery. And And what happened over the next... 10 to 15 years 90 percent at least 90 percent of our surgeries involved or were done to people who were around their 50s so there are you know there are two completely distinct animals in this population so when we are talking about knee arthroscopy we should distinguish the the young people in their 20s who shouldn't worry about the risks of surgery because when you are young the risk of surgery that Chris just described all over. And then we have this huge population of people who still undergo knee arthroscopy who are in their forties, fifties, or even sixties, who do have a slightly higher risk of surgery. I wouldn't emphasize the risk of surgery as Chris just explained. They are somewhere around one in 500, one in thousand. So the risks are not the issue here. They, they are sudden. The issue is whether you can expect to have a benefit, a benefit that you will consider something worthwhile going through the operation. You asked about the risk of knee replacements after arthroscopy. Again, this is, this is something, this was one of the main arguments in, uh, let's say, 10, 15 years ago to, do, to carry out arthroscopy for someone middle-aged with knee pain because we thought We honestly thought that these are causing knee osteoarthritis. But we've shown through studies that it really doesn't work that way. And right now we are actually thinking that knee arthroscopy might actually increase your risk of developing OA or your risk of getting a total knee replacement. There are some studies that indicate this however i have to emphasize that these studies have their own inherent biases and if we were to have this discussion let's say in 6 months time i could give you some evidence from our fidelity trial because this is really and i know that i'm sounding a little arrogant saying this but this is really the first study that can conclusively give an answer to this question because in this population all of the people had knee arthroscopy and that might on its own right or or as a as a procedure have some detrimental effect on knee cartil- cartilage but then we also have half of the population who have had their meniscus meniscus resected or part of the meniscus resected so this study will give us hopefully within the next 6 months a little more evidence to to talk about the risk of maybe developing advanced knee OA.
2: Another episode where we were trying to dispel some of these myths is when we had Howard Lux along. Again, another prominent orthopedic surgeon. He joined us in season two, episode 20, to talk about, do you really need surgery for your knee osteoarthritis? Again, when you go along to a surgeon, it's really important you be informed about the benefits risks, harms, and costs, so that you can be adequately informed about whether you should have surgery or not. So we spoke to Howard about some of this important content, and in particular, what proportion of patients that he sees actually require an operation. Now, some people go along to him, and they're adamant for knee surgery, whether they need it or not. So he takes us through a conversation about dissuading someone, about the necessity of having an operation and the fact that sometimes their expectations won't necessarily be met. For clinicians who are listening and are interested in that space, you provide some language or tips about how to discourage surgery, which is critically important in this particular context. Now, obviously the main content of today is really about surgeries and potentially unnecessary surgeries in older adults who come along with, in this instance, we're talking predominantly, I think, about knee pain and arthritis associated with that. Now, in the first instance, I just want to paint a scenario and want you to tell me sort of how common that type of scenario is. But a person comes along, they've been referred by their primary care doctor, their GP, a general practitioner. They've had knee pain for a number of years. they They're overweight. They're less active than they could be. They're probably not as strong as they could be. And they've got knee pain on most activities during the course of the day, particularly going up and down stairs, but also with other activities. And they've been referred to you with no other provision of treatment provided prior to you seeing them. And they've taken some over-the-counter anti-inflammatories, but they haven't worked. And so- Here they are, they're knocking on your door. Is that a common scenario for you?
0: (laughs) Only about 15 times a day. Uh, So it is something I see very frequently.
2: And in your practice, in your hospital, do you see an increase in the number of presentations like that, an increased volume of surgery happening in the community around you associated with that?
0: I see a significant number of knee replacements occurring in the community. Certainly, I can't speak to, let's say, the conversion percentage, right? How many people that surgeon saw versus what percent of the ones they saw they're operating on. You know, I can speak to my conversion rate, which is very low, and to jump back to that patient that you presented... It's very common for them to present with an MRI, unfortunately, or with the knowledge that they had an x-ray showing bone on bone. One of those phrases that we unfortunately use, and I have a very popular post on my website that says, you cannot unsee your MRI results. But the same holds true for your x-ray results. And unfortunately, we initiate a situation for patients where they can't escape these phrases, bone on bone, et cetera. People think of arthritis as being a mechanical situation, that every movement, every time they bend their knee, they're wearing away cartilage. They don't understand that it's actually a biological problem. And to the contrary, activity is going to help them. So I spend a lot of time with these people uh, in the scenario that you gave trying to educate them, trying to help them understand what osteoarthritis actually is, um, and then run through you know, the litany of treatments that uh, could potentially help them. But I have to try and draw them back from an MRI impression that showed 10 things wrong you know, I start off by saying that no one over 35 has an MRI that comes back saying normal. They probably know people who are running, riding, biking, lifting weights, whose knees look just as bad as theirs. And if I can pull them back off the edge from seeing their MRI or x-ray reading, then we can have uh, a constructive talk about where we can go from here.
2: And obviously, once they've got referred to you and they've got that MRI in their hand, how fixed are they in their minds that they probably need something done when they first arrive? Are they are they pretty set on what they need to do and how long does that process require for you to change change that mindset?
0: So that's a great question. and I think we as physicians too frequently take the ball and run with it, meaning, We have a patient in our office that saw these awful reports and these bone-on-bone, and they've convinced themselves that they need an operation because of these findings. try to impress upon them that we treat patients and not images, and there are plenty of very active people with bone-on-bone arthritis, and they don't need a knee replacement. So I don't want to feed into their thoughts where they've already convinced themselves that they need an operation and then just go down that pathway. Instead, I'm going to start with why you're here. What are you concerned about? Tell me about your quality of life. Tell me about the impact that this is having on your quality of life. Forget your imaging findings. And let's have a constructive conversation about how this is impacting your life and how I can improve that.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's so important about reframing their context in terms of what they see the problem is. Yes because I think the huge challenge for many people in clinical practice is that MRIs, X-rays are so pervasive. And as you said before, if, if they see the, the report from their MRI, which potentially to them looks like a battlefield, and that they'll interpret you know, meniscal tears as something that might need surgical intervention. And so obviously in that context, dissuading them and re, reframing that whole context back to presumably their original presentation when they came along to the person that referred them to you with, I've got knee pain, I'm doing this activity and it's stopping me from doing an activity that I otherwise love. So reframing that context, is is that something that takes you quite a while in each person that comes along to you? Yes,
0: it does. I'll schedule an initial arthritis patient uh, for close to 30 minutes in the office, because these are not quick and simple visits. It would actually be quicker to tell them, oh my God, terrible x-ray, you need a knee replacement and schedule it, right? I could run through the risks of the surgery faster than I can talk about the evolution of osteoarthritis, the natural history of it, and reframe the conversation as you stated.
2: So for clinicians, and hopefully also for patients trying to understand what clinicians are doing when they're making that decision, is there a particular language or tips that you would use for people who are out there who are considering surgery, who've gone along to see the surgery, particularly when you're thinking about the language that should be used or the framing of the communication about how best to try to dissuade people from surgery who probably don't need it in the first place? First.
0: I really have to dive down into how this is affecting their quality of life. Is it that they can't play three sets of tennis and they're only playing two or that they can't walk the golf course anymore? They need to ride in a cart. Are there associated medical conditions or problems, right? People with poor metabolic health, so type 2 diabetes, hypertension, a little abdominal obesity, we know that uh, that's a highly inflammatory process, and they're going to have more pain than others. And there's things that we can do with our primary care colleagues to improve the situation. So I have to take into account their medical condition, their complaints, the treatments that they've tried, and I have to educate them about the disease process. As we've talked about, this is not a mechanical process. They should not be afraid of exercising and and trying to get the most out of physical therapy or their own efforts. And if we're successful at changing the narrative and reframing the context of the conversation, many of these people are actually quite thankful. They may be skeptical, certainly, but they opt in or buy in to Uh, a non-operative approach, non-surgical approach, and they understand it may take a number of weeks to months to get there. But in the end, it's surprising how many people do extremely well without surgery. And not unusually, because we get older, we develop many aches and pains. I'll see someone that we walked back off the cliff from a knee replacement due to their first exacerbation of arthritic pain and terrible looking x-rays. And we had a conversation. We initiated therapy. I didn't see them back. But two years later, I'm seeing them for their shoulder. And, hey, how are you doing? I had to come back to you. You you told me not to have surgery. It was the best thing you ever did. Right? So here was... Someone was ready to sign on the dotted line. So once you create a believer, that's great because that's going to sell itself in the community and to their friends as well.
2: The third episode where we were again joined by Dr. Tepa Yavinin to talk about arthroscopy, past time to stop the harm, was broadcast in season four, episode four. It may sound a little bit repetitive, but we dig into this controversial issue a little bit further and talk about what evidence-based medicine is and how you, as a person with osteoarthritis, can ensure that the treatment you are receiving has some evidence base to support it, particularly around arthroscopy for knee osteoarthritis and also partial meniscectomy for those people that might have a meniscal tear. Again, we touch upon that topic whether there's any subgroups and really dispel that myth that there is. And then, again, try to reinforce that you're getting credible evidence-based care. And again, optimize your chances of receiving a benefit and not just harm and cost. What is evidence-based medicine or treatment? And how can people, I guess, particularly those with osteoarthritis, ensure that the treatment that they're getting is evidence-based?
3: this is a very broad question and i I doubt that i am the best expert in elaborating what evidence-based medicine is i guess most of the listeners would would assume that everything we do in medicine is evidence-based or science-based but to a great surprise to many this isn't the case evidence-based medicine was something that was kind of discovered slowly in the beginning of 90s it really started as a movement from a few universities in the world one being McMaster University in Canada one being Oxford in, in the UK and frankly i don't i can't even remember the the exact definition of evidence based medicine but it it kind of meant a transition from the old old paradigm that doctors were just seeing the patients that they had treated and basically assessed whether or not they had done a good job to another approach where we started asking patients about how they fared after certain procedures of medical interventions like giving them drugs and started comparing doing something with doing nothing as as we did in our trial where we did the actual surgery to half of the patients, but half of the patients without knowing actually got a placebo or sham operation. And then we followed them up very carefully by other people other than the ones that actually did the surgery and used validated questionnaires to ask about their symptoms and how they were doing. So basically, evidence-based medicine is, is a scientific approach to assessing whether the stuff we do as doctors works or not.
2: What's the argument that's been made? And is there any evidence to support the notion that there are subgroups of people that may respond to arthroscopic partial metasectomy?
3: Yeah, just just a little sidetrack. Guidelines made by people who are not in the field. So people who are expert in critical appraisal or experts in assessing treatments, experts of evidence-based medicine have very strongly argued against the procedure. So they have made guidelines that actually suggest that we should stop doing this. While orthopedic surgeons have made a number of guidelines that suggest the contrary that we should continue doing and their guidelines have proposed or asserted that there are still subgroups some specific patients who benefit from this surgery the, the and this is one of the problems with, with current medicine or ca- current evidence-based medicine it seems to be okay to say something pretty weighty like, yeah, there are still people who benefit from this surgery right, without the need to provide actual data to support your claim. So for the past five years, we have had this hunt for these subgroups. People have used various different analytic approaches trying to tease out these subgroups, trying to identify these subgroups, these asserted, alleged subgroups that would benefit. And I I won't get into details about the, the proposed subgroups to benefit, but but basically there have been assertions that they are people like this or they are people like that. Now, a paper that was published in your journal or will be soon published in your journal used a very modern analytic approach where they kind of gather together a lot of data from different trials, trials that we talked about um, just before, to try to tease out whether there are actually subgroups to benefit from this procedure. And again, this wasn't the first study to try to tease out these subgroups, but this used another method, another very modern method, and it again failed to identify any subgroups that benefited from the procedures, and this kind of exemplifies the problem in modern medicine those who are carrying out these procedures who are still arguing that th- this is a good procedure are doing just that they are not they are not just actually providing any data they are just ass- uh, providing assertions and then other scientists have the obligation to actually carry out the study to prove to corroborate or refute these assertions, and and this this paper to be published was another one of those, which again simply showed that the procedure doesn't work. We don't we can't identify uh, consistently any any certain characteristics in patients which would predict a good outcome.
2: How can patients who are out there try to ensure? that the treatment that they're receiving is evidence-based, if they can at all?
3: That is a fascinating question. And and as a patient, I can totally understand that you, if you're listening to this podcast, you feel confused because you have every right to expect that the person who is treating you, whether he or she is a, a doctor or a physiotherapist or, or any other healthcare professional, you would expect him or her to practice science-based clinical practice. But that really isn't the case and this is really the problem the imbalance in the knowledge of the scientific literature behind and and as a patient you have to have trust in the person who is treating you how do you ensure that the person treating you is is doing it in a scientific manner i've been in the business for for the past 30 years and i guess it is the obligation of our system and it, it really boils down to the public trust of our system to make everything we do as scientific as possible. And that I guess is really the point of the editorial that you asked me to write about about the credibility and public trust of our system.
2: So I'm hoping you found the content helpful. Again, it's rebroadcast from prior episodes, but it's a really important topic and it's something that Many thousands of people are having every year at substantial cost to the healthcare system, to themselves, and really exposing themselves to unnecessary harms. Again, outside of a very rare instance, arthroscopy is strongly not recommended for the management of knee osteoarthritis. Again, the predilection by which it's done is complicated. But if people truly are practicing evidence-based care, we would see a marked reduction in the frequency with which these procedures are occurring. I'm hoping you found the content useful. I'm hoping it's informed future conversations that you may have with surgeons hopefully advocating for your care. Thank you so much for the support of the podcast. And Between now and when we next speak, please do take good care of yourself.
0: Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointaction.org. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicki Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking
2: medical advice should consult a health professional. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well...